Hi, this is Aaron Asrod, and welcome to the 62nd episode of the Truth Island Podcast. When I last had Daniel on the show, we discussed some of the differences that existed between the Canadian and American education system. But what if something more serious is at play? Is it possible that we here in America have simply lost an appreciation for education? When we think of our most richest and successful members of society, we often think of celebrities, sports athletes, or maverick business entrepreneurs who dropped out of school and gave the world a giant middle finger and went on to earn millions and millions and millions of dollars. But here's the thing. Did you know that in the city of San Francisco, one of the wealthiest cities in America, the median household income is over 96,000 a year and nearly 75,000 per individual. Adding to this, nearly 55% of residents report having a bachelor's degree or higher. Indeed, when we think of wealth and success, our minds often float to the magnificent gates and the McMansions behind them. But why exactly do we seldom wonder what is it that these people who live in these McMansions actually do for a living? Furthermore, is our appreciation for education simply a means to obtaining vast wealth? Or is there something to be said for the person who might just be exceptionally smart for the sake of being smart? Can it be said that just being wise and knowing things is something to be proud of in itself? Or must there always be a fat paycheck to validate those brain cells? Returning to the show, I am once again joined by Daniel. Daniel, let's pick off where we last left off. I'm wondering why girls these days can't really seem to go for the brainy guys unless they're driving a Corvette. Uh, have they ever, maybe, is, is my question, question to you. <laughs> I think there's a storied history of brainiacs who are uh, inventing things to get attention from suitors, uh, maybe going all the way back to ancient times. There's, there's a comedian that had a really good bit about that, that, you know, all of these smart guys, they're not good looking. They needed to do something else to get the girls. <laughs> And so maybe that's a part of human nature. It's a part of human evolution that we, in, in place of physical attraction or physical ability, we, and I'm saying we not necessarily to make any <laughs> assumptions about either of us, but maybe these intelligent people who we're talking about, they need to lean into something else, another domain of expertise hmm. to you know, attract the female. And I, it's a kind of a hard biology evolutionary way of looking at things, but maybe that's a place to start. Yeah, this, uh, you know, my friend Kenny would agree with this. He would say that all of human desires are basically money and sex. So everything, everything that we're doing, even when we're being extremely bookish, there is some kind of uh, means to an end of like acquiring wealth and, and by proxy access to women and all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. um, let's think about um, our San Francisco here. So we have yeah. these like images of like wealthy and well we think of wealthy it's always these very 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 outlier cases in our society like it's, it's the person who and again now i don't know how it is in canada but we do have this idea of the john wayne rugged individual type that you know doesn't need any book learning to to kind of get ahead in the world and then he can kind of just go out there and open up a business and there is a part of the american dream that does revolve around that but if you actually just kind of crunch the data, if you look into the data, you'll notice that whether you're, you know, a civil servant or a rugged individual, you're still, you need brains and you need education, you know, in your backseat. So as a, as an outside observer, you know, as a Canadian looking in, I think that looking back into America's founding history, it was pioneering and progressing westward. That it was you able to secure all this wealth and influence and power just by being in America and moving west. And that's kind of the mentality that it seems at least the country was founded on that. Yes, it's ours for the taking and I don't need no book learning. I need to go in there, maybe have a big iron on my hip and that's all I need to find gold or to find oil or to find whatever it is to make me rich and wealthy. And I think maybe what's the disconnect that's happening is that America or the world, the developed world has moved into a different era where brains, as we're calling them, is more valuable than just being in America or being forceful or being at the right place at the right time. There's something else that's needed nowadays. 
And I think it's worth looking into, okay, well, when we say brains and when we say education, when we say intel intellect and intelligence, I'm thinking maybe we should parse these things out because having a bachelor's degree may or may not require an amount of intelligence and being smart, quote unquote, well, there are maybe different types of smart. There is the street smart, the classic street smart, the book smart, the emotionally intelligent. Mm. So maybe we should kind of narrow it down and focus on something. Okay, absolutely. And this actually reminds me of a previous podcast I did on the idea of being like an audiodidact, meaning a person that wants to just learn for the sake of learning. And mm. this is this is my conclusion. There's probably people out there listening who disagree with me. I think to be a true audiodidact, we're talking about two to three percent of the population. Like very few people have the discipline to just open up a chemistry book and actually teach them like all the knowledge that they would have learned being a chemistry major on their own. Not yeah. saying it's not impossible. And if I look at my own education, a lot of it has been in the public library. I've read a lot of books that were never on any syllabus or any professor told me to read. I just was naturally curious. But you know, if I'm being real with the world, I think that's a very small minutia portion of the population. I think for the average person developing education and developing expertise in a university system or in a vocational system is actually going to be a valuable tool for them. You know, I'm not, I'm not quite on the, uh, you know, anti-education. There's a lot of things wrong with education. But at the same time, if we just look at the data, the people with bachelor's degrees, and maybe they're not, as you said, they're not true autodidacts, they're not true philosophers or lovers of wisdom, but by being forced to eat that broccoli, they have become healthier in a way. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess a question that I have for you is, do you think this minority of the population that is interested, like I perceive these as lifelong learners, people who are outside of school, but still pursue knowledge. Uh, my question to you is, do you think that that is a predisposition that is biologically determined by personality, psychology and whatnot? Or is that something that can be brought out by an education system or a teacher or the right social situation? And the answer is probably a little bit of both, but I I'm curious as to what you think about that. Okay, so I think that in regards to it being a predisposition, I think we all have certain proclivities as to what we are mm -hmm. interested in obsessing about. For me, that happens to be like philosophy and stuff. And I actively go to philosophy meetups and 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 just kind of go outside the realm of what's required of, of me to know, right? So I think that we all have certain proclivities and there might be a kid out there that has a proclivity towards basketball or to hockey or, or to really be an autodidact in that sphere. The issue arises is that when you're autodidact um, skill set is outside that of viable economic means that that becomes sort of a, a, a difficulty and it's very difficult to become an autodidact in something you're not passionate about. So mm -hmm. if you're very, very if you have a predisposition towards let's say accruing hockey knowledge, right? It's going to be really hard for you to just be like, yes, I'm going to randomly now read all these books on chemistry. So I would say that we're kind of beholden to our predispositions as to what we're passionate about and we have no control over that. And I, I think the, the the general population let me refine what I said earlier. I think everyone does have something that they probably can obsess over it a lot. Um, but when we're talking about skills and education that is of economically viable means, that becomes the much more difficult aspect. Yeah, because as a teacher, um, and you know, maybe eventually a parent one day, I want to think, well, this child maybe doesn't have the motivation to be a lifelong learner, but hopefully there's something that I can do to condition or to encourage or to set a scene for that child or even young adult to become a lifelong learner because it gets a little bit dark when we say, well, there are certain people who just can't do that. There are certain people who just don't want it. And that's something that one of my colleagues brought up to me. They said, well, what about that kid who just wants to sit in the back and cruise? Is it really, <laughs> is it really your role to go in there and force this book report down their throat? They're checking all the boxes and they're not bothering anybody. Why not just leave them? How come everybody has to be a passionate lifelong learner? I'll tell you a story about me in summer camp, okay? So for a few uh -huh. years, my parents sent me to a sports summer camp. We played soccer, we played baseball, 
And I was like the most miserable child in that camp because <laughs> mm-hmm, yeah. I, I sucked at, at sports. I threw up the ball, you know, terribly or whatever, bad, bad motor skills, right? No matter how much that was thrusted upon me, I was never going to be a lifelong learner in the world of sports. Now, I did eventually get into judo and other things that I found interesting, things that did not require a ball per se or c- competing within teams. But I think that we can expose people to things but it becomes really impossible to make them a, a, a lifelong learner in something that they don't have passion for. And this is where, as an educator, I have to empathize like, whoa, history is not your thing, my friend. I respect that. And I respect you for not being interested in that. So I, 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 to answer your colleague's uh, question about this, I think we can expose children to a lot of things. But ultimately, what's going to stick and what's not going to stick is ultimately up to them. I suppose my my broader question is, well, yes, I agree with you that everybody has a proclivity or an interest in something. Yeah. And our job as adults, as parents, as educators, as role models is to expose the younger generation to as many things as possible so that we can discover what that thing is. But are there people out there who really don't have anything or don't want anything? Yes, yes, there is. There, there is that too. So? And, yes. and there are people who just like pleasure for the sake of pleasure. And mm. again, no judgment here, by the way. Mm. I, I wish I could be that guy. I wish I could just be like, you know, Yankees or whatever. And then just, yeah. and just, and just <laughs> ignorance kind of is like, bliss. Yeah. Right, right. I wish, I wish that I didn't have all this like anxiety and all this like philosophical angst in my mind. But, you know, it is what, well, I don't want to use that phrase. That's my word. I almost, I almost <laughs> use the phrase that I hate the most. It is what it is. Thank God I checked myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but there are, there, there are people out there that do have this, this idea of like, I just want to survive, right? There's yeah. people who yeah. just want to survive. And I would argue that developing a vocation, a skill or a skill set, either in a university setting or in a vocational training program is going to serve them well, because their main objective is to survive and procreate. That is their primary objective and to have pleasure in their life. Again, no value judgment there, just that's what they prefer. So I would say, yes, those people do exist. Yeah. I mean, as, you know, as a hopeful optimist and, and as a young, bushy-eyed, bushy-eyed, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed <laughs> uh, young teacher, I, I want to believe that every student has something that they can excel and be good at. But at the same time, I look at, I look around myself and I see we have the internet in front of us. Mm-hmm. You can learn about anything you want at any point in time, virtually for free. And there are still people who are so unmotivated and can't find anything that they're passionate about, or they are so discouraged that they don't even try. And so that makes me think, hmm, maybe maybe these types of people do exist. And again, maybe there's nothing wrong with that, but it just kind of kind of brings a, a cloud over my head to think about that. You know, that that's, you know, one of the things about Truth Island, and, and I like that I enjoy about doing this podcast, is that not all the episodes are optimistic. There's some really screwed up and ugly truths about yeah. our world. But Daniel, the only way that we can kind of solve the world's problems is if we embrace these really ugly truths mm-hmm. about the world. And once we, we, we uncover that, we uncover like, geez, there's a bunch of people that go on Wikipedia all day and look stuff up. And then there's a bunch of other people that don't do that all the time. That's an ugly truth, right? Like why are some people highly curious about the world and others aren't? But I think once we know that truth, the optimistic or the beauty in it is that we can start designing systems and start designing things that can help the very curious Wikipedia folk and at the same time take care of our brethren who just aren't all that curious. Well, it, it brings it brings to mind some Marxist ideas that, well, may, this, this sounds like, well, there's an elite and there's a non-elite. And the elite are the types of people who are curious and looking into these things and they will have the, the power in the world. And the non-elite are the ones who are not curious. And because it's a predisposition, they're fated to a certain role in society. That, I think that's how a Marxist might reply to that. It's like, well, it sounds like no, you sound glad. like a bourgeoisie over here. Right? Oh, absolutely. And, and if, if that Marxist came and just saw how I lived, they'd be like, that's no elite right there. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like, believe me, my friend, I'm subsisting mm-hmm. off cans of soup and tuna fish sandwiches over here in mm-hmm. Truth Island. So I, I, I hear that. I absolutely yeah. hear that. 
but here's the idea. If this is in fact an ugly truth, this is what I would say to the Marx Marxist. Suppose this is an ugly truth. Okay, that doesn't mean that the curious elite dominate and decimate the other 90% of humanity. What sure. it means actually, it, the implications of that are actually quite twisted. It's that the elite have to now take care of that yeah. other 90%. It's not- They have it's a not, responsibility They have now. a responsibility. And, and as I said, I, I think being, you know, people think that being smart is all just rewards and glamor, but it's actually really a huge burden. It's really, it's really, really a huge burden to have to take care of all of these other people. So I would say to the Marxist, like, okay, I'm not advocating for world domination. I'm just saying that if this is an ugly truth, and, and again, I use the word, like, it, we, we can't change this, then we can start taking care of, of, of the people, uh, people who think differently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and have different needs. And I think I think that's a very fair response. But I'm interested in how you're relating intellect or smartness to economic success. Yeah, I'm, 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 per I'm personally reading a book right now called Millionaire Teacher. And what was really fascinating in the opening chapters is not he doesn't get right into how to make a lot of money. He actually goes into how are you defining wealth and success and rich? Mm. What does it mean to be rich? Right. And so I think that a smart person can be eating tuna fish sandwiches and ramen every day and be very rich and very wealthy in their own reality. And richness is kind of a outside marketer. Like, yes. Well, this person is rich because they do what? They drive a Porsche or because they retire early or because they have enough time to spend with their kids. What does rich really mean? <laughs> you know, it, it, I love that you said that, Daniel, and you would fit right in with uh, me and my friend Kenny. We also believe that um, you know, philosophy in general gives one inner richness, in, in, inner richness, and it's, it's a richness that can be taken no matter how grave the circumstances, no matter how impoverished you are externally. If you have high levels of philosophical richness, you have the coping mechanisms and you have the skills to kind of deal with no matter how ugly the external environment is. Unfortunately, I've tried that argument on so many people and it does just, it does not work. They, they still think mansion's going to make me happy. Mansion is going to make, you know, they just, they can't. And I believe me, I've been, I tried speaking to them as eloquently, as friendly, as humanly possible. And there's also a little bit of a hubris on their part because I, I do have friends or acquaintances and they know that I'm not the most well-off guy in the world. And they kind of think, oh, well, Aaron, he's just rationalizing his poverty. He's mm -hmm. just, he's just, you know, he's just rationalizing his inadequacy or his lack of success. So there, there are people who kind of look down upon us and think that all of this is an elaborate ruse or an elaborate, um, rationalizing away of our own failures or, or like, oh, you're a te like when teachers say like, oh, well, I have a higher meaning to teach children. And that's why I don't need to, you know, like th yeah. th there is, there is this like stigma that we're just rationalizing our own bullshit or, or, or something mm -hmm. along those lines. And I'm like, okay, like, you know, I, I hear, I hear those people on that front as well. And I don't think, Daniel, at this time, at this particular juncture, and this is this is the key word, is that if you look at civilization, there's conversations that we need to be having at different junctures. And maybe in a thousand years, we'll be at the Star Trek next generation level, where we'll all just be like, oh, we don't need money. We don't need things. As long mm -hmm. as we have the right philosophical paradigm, everything is wonderful. Unfortunately, we're just, I don't see us getting there in our lifetime. That's more of a mm -hmm. thousand year long-term goal. I, I just don't see it happening now in the reality. So I would say that for now, for now, we need to start tying, you know, me and you, you and I can appreciate wisdom and philosophy for the sake of, right? But for the average person, we need to kind of shape that this will make your life better holistically. And if you know more things, you are more likely to probably earn some money. Yeah, the the question that I have coming back to you with that because I do I do agree with you on everything that you're saying, but it's how what do we do with this person if they're not going to listen to you know the other side of the fence? What is what is there for them? I mean, you can be available. That's one thing. Yeah. Um, but you know, a theory that I have is that I I'm very lucky that I grew up in a privileged household. Like I could, I lived in a fairly large house. I had a pool in my backyard. My dad drove a nice car, but after experiencing that wealth as a child and that mm. richness, I realized that that's not the thing that makes you happy. 
And, you know, I'm very lucky that I have a very wise dad who didn't force me to become a dentist or a lawyer or an engineer or, or some kind of finance person that makes a lot of money because he understood that he busted his ass to provide all these things for us. And at the end of the day, I would have turned out the same if I didn't have a pool in my backyard, if there was one less floor in my house. That's not what makes you rich. That's not what makes you happy. But the issue is I would only know that after experiencing it. If I tell my friend who is a refugee or I tell my friend who came from a communist country, you don't, you don't need a big house. Trust me. You don't need a sports car. <laughs> They're saying, yeah, well, you're just saying that because you, you, you don't have one and you used to have one. So you're just rationalizing your failure in the same way that your friends are talking to you. So part of me wants to say that it's necessary for there to be some kind of experiential moment yes. where they have to come to that realization themselves that, you know, my friend buys that $10,000 Rolex and goes, huh this actually is not all that great. Yes. So to answer your question, and this is, you know, and I want you to help me answer this question. I think that the way we do it is we need to clean up the images of wealth that we have in the media. I think this is the first mm -hmm. kind of a step start. because what happens is, is that we show the big houses, we show the expensive watches, but we don't show the philosophical systems that are at play that allow that lifestyle to happen and to allow fruit to grow. Um, you know, I, I think of the show, The Sopranos, for example, gorgeous house, you know, tons of wealthy. When we depict um, rich people, it's always in a very Machiavellian nefarious sense. Like I, I dominate people, I control them. I'm a manipulator, or, uh, you know, I'm an, you know, or I'm an athlete, or I have magical powers. You know, it's always we 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 when we show wealth, it's always in a very just not in a very realistic sense. So I think when we show wealth in the media, we need to start showing the philosophical systems that bring about that wealth. And I think one of those things is education. I like one, one of the shows before this guy went to jail was the Cosby show. And, you know, obviously Bill Cosby has a ton of problems, but one of the things that I really liked about that show is that he was a, a doctor and his wife was a lawyer and they were like, you know, they were regular people. They were like, oh, I came home. And I, I think he was, um, I forgot, what's the name of the doctor that delivers babies? Um, my mind is blanking a little right bit before my time, unfortunately, but I'll, I'll, I'll take your word for it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But, um, you know, the, the, the idea behind it is that you showed, okay, these are their jobs. They, you know, mm -hmm. doctor, lawyer, surgeon, whatever it is. And you show them and you show the daily problems that they go. They're just like us. They go to the grocery store. They have to make decisions and they instill values within their children. And I think we need to have a return to that. We need to have a return to where we are showing rich people by proxy of their education, like via their education, right? It's like, it's their education, it's their wisdom, it's their degrees that got them here because that's the reality. The data, you know, I've looked at the data, the data shows that, and we're not showing that in the media. And once we start kind of sending those images out there, because again, assuming on the uh, idea that most people are just chasing carrots, unfortunately, if they want the carrot, they'll be like, hmm, I need to subscribe to this ideation to get there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that would work, but the problem is it's just not as flashy and glamorous and sexy to, you know, go, oh, well, this person's actually a wise, calm, well thought out, meth methodical person. That's not going to make very interesting reality TV as much as I wish it would. Another maybe way of going about doing it is instead of changing the media, it's to reduce the media's influence on the individual. So this is this is something that I often disagree with with my fellow teachers that, you know, when something comes up, like, say, body positivity, they say we need to change the ads, we need to change the videos, we need to change the commercials. But my response to that is, how about instead of focusing on the product that's being consumed, why don't we focus on the consumer? How about we teach the children not to allow themselves to have their ideas of beauty or of wealth or of whatever it is to be influenced by the media? That seems a lot more solid to me. And also the fact that these media companies show us what we want to see. They show thin models because that's what sells magazines. That's why it's there. So if we instead focus on the consumer and have the media have less influence on them, I think that might be a viable route too. But definitely changing the media itself would help as well. 
I'm glad you touched upon that. I'm actually going to be doing a future podcast with a guy who gave up television for six years and he's, he's on six years and running, not having watched any TV. What um, about YouTube? <laughs> I think he does a little, you know, that, that's really yeah, hard. Yeah, yeah. That's really hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, I agree with you. I mm. absolutely agree with you. My only concern is that our lazy reptilian minds kind of have this way of sort of grasping at the easiest medium humanly possible and 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 youtube and media is just so easy to consume now i agree with you because it takes a lot of just takes a lot of self-discipline to unplug your television and throw it away or give it away and just acquire your ideas of beauty from books because like what, what else is there to turn to um, if you don't have media to influence you, then you have to turn back to the library. You have to return back to older mediums to, to, to build your value system up. So I, I agree with you that that's the ideal, but I'm just worried about our lazy reptilian minds that kind of want to go to the, you know, the low hanging fruit for wisdom. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's, it's kind of an issue with popular media. It's that, well, the thing that is popular is the thing that is popular. It's not necessarily because it has merit or it's valuable or it's useful. It's the most eye-catching, ear-pleasing, satisfying thing that is available to the masses. So how can we, you know, how do we go about changing that? I think, you know, I'm going to do a completely self, selfish plug here, but that's the beauty yeah. of podcasting is, is that, yeah. it, it, you know, like, like I think what we're trying to do here by having this conversation is that we, 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 we know that it's very difficult for people to read books right now, but this is maybe the next best thing is there where we're having long, like thought out conversations and may, maybe, you know, down the line, I need to trim some of these episodes and, and, and make sound bites that are even more kind of appealing and so forth. But I, I, I think that we have to, you know, the one thing, the one great liberator of the internet is that it does allow the floodgates to be opened, right? And sure. unfortunately, uh, a lot of crazy folk have capitalized on that and put a lot of, you know, like, don't vaccinate your kids information out there into the world. And, and sure, yeah. I, I, think, I think us, again, I, I'm, I'm going to try, I don't want to upset the Marxists by using enlightened people or anything like that. But, <laughs> but like, you know, us people that, that seem to know a thing or two, we need to kind of be a little bit more aggressive with getting our, our word out there. And we don't want to be overly preachy and yeah, patronizing. Yeah, and patroni yeah. yeah. We don't want to patronize people. We don't want to be overly preaching. Um, but we owe it to kind of shift the paradigm slowly and be like, Hey, being smart, you know, getting an education and knowing things can uh, lead to wealthy. I, I personally am not wealthy, but I can point to a bunch of other <laughs> examples of more successful people who are wealthy. And if you talk to them, you'll notice that they have like, uh, you know, a, a BS in, in computer science or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I think making that data and making that information readily available to people. Here, here's another thing that we could do. Why is it that colleges are not like more aggressively marketing as to like, if you get this degree, then you will earn this amount of dollars or something. I think that needs to be a very refined system where uh, guidance counselors, teachers should have all of this data at their disposal so that they can instantly be reminding students like, no, no, no. And, and like, this should actually be like a class that's taught maybe in a civics class or something in high school yeah, where you're actually- literacy. Yeah, where, where you actually- because I think what happens is that there's probably a way that you can actually build this into the math curriculum where you show like your Bill Gates and your celebrities. And then you're like, look at that. That's 0.0000003% of the population or some minutia number. Here's a bunch of other career fields that are far more viable and far more likely to bring prosperity into your life. And perhaps if you don't, if you don't have a passion for something else, that's not such a bad way to spend your time. Mm, yeah, I, I think that creating content, which is what you are doing and I get to be a part of, that is an important step. To have the rich, deep content available is one step. And I think you're doing that. And yes, the, the idea of wealthy, I think you should be a little more gracious with yourself, Aaron. You are wealthy, but not in the fiscal sense, right? <laughs> there's, there's different types of wealth. There's all sorts of what meanings of to the word richness. So I would say you're an internally rich person, at least. Thank you. And yeah, I, I think that's, yeah, that's, that, that's a very fair point that we, even if they, even if it, even if we can't get everybody to listen to this podcast, having it exist and having it be there is something that you and I can be proud of and that we contributed to that much at least. And Ab 
Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think I think that it's not it, it can't just be me alone. I think there's a lot of mm-hmm. enlightened things. Now there is some there's a very dark and scary thing though that does happen amongst the affluent that I have noticed. I think that there is this idea amongst the affluent. Now, I actually did not grow up affluent. I actually grew up lower middle class. So maybe you can help me here a little bit. I think that there's also, I'm not calling it a conspiracy theory, but I think that the rich secretly stress education, like secretly get their kids to take advanced calculus classes and and do and, and take AP biology and all this other stuff. And in a way, I think some of these wealthy parents are secretly hoping that lower class children don't do these things so there'll be less competition for their own children. And I'm sure, I'm sure your parents weren't that way, but I have this feeling. I just have this feeling because if you look at America, the schools, you know, we have a lot of um, people who are outwardly liberal, but we have some of the most segregated schools, you know, like our, our school system in New York is just as segregated as it was in the 1950s. So you have a lot of these parents that outwardly profess their love for an egalitarian world, but then they secretly put their kids into these elite private schools or these closed off public schools, force their kids to, you know, study calculus, force their kids to study biology. And I, I kind of think that the affluent are sort of hoarding the secret to success. And that is like, yeah, it's the kid that does take these AP classes that's going to end up being successful. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Um, that it's, it's again, it's the, the elite and the non-elite thing, right? The elite want to stay elite and they want to keep the non-elite out. And I kind of want to ask what you mean by secret, though. If it's if you mean like an open secret, well, then I suppose so. You know, how I was raised was yes, even though I grew up in a wealthy home and I wanted to be a musician, mm. my my parents said, well, hold, hold on, you had better get 90s in your science classes before you go to university for that music degree, because you need you need to be able to show me that if things go south with your music or your teaching, you have other skill sets, or at least you have the potential mm. to be able to do something else. And so I don't know how much of a secret that is. I like to me and all my friends and all of my community members that I'm a part of, they all know that they all understand that. But if you're willing to open up the word elite to include all of those people, then yeah, maybe it is an open secret. Okay, I'll explain. And again, I'm not saying that this is a deliberate thing. It might just happen mm-hmm. by like as a byproduct of, of life. Okay. Yeah. So here's a perfect example. A rich kid knows that education is important because they brush elbows with lawyers. They brush elbows with parents that are, oh, my my dad is an engineer. He has five patents out on blah, blah, blah. So rich kids kind of learn that education is important from an early age because they're constantly brushing elbows with adult figures that are examples of this. And yet those adult figures never appear in lower class communities to be like, hey guys, I'm a successful engineer. I have 10 patents. I just want to share my life story with you guys. Like they could visit public schools or they could sort of make their essence or or their presence known in other stratas and in other spheres. And again, that's, that's charity, right? Like they don't have to do that. You know, they don't have to do that. But I think that there, that imagery of like, oh, highly educated person earning $300,000 a year or whatever, it remains an enigma in lower class cultures because they only see the media diet of, of like the celebrities, the rappers, the, you know, you know, the guy who dropped out of college in his sophomore year. They only see those examples. They're never fed the diet of all the successful people who have master's degrees and have six patents, and that's how they generated their wealth. Yeah, my counterpoint to that is ethnic parents or immigrant parents often have a very, very extreme understanding and they exert extreme pressure on their children to enter these fields. Yes. The classic Chinese parents want that Chinese kid to be a doctor in America or for, um, you know, the Indian son to become a lawyer or an engineer or something. So I I'm not sure if rich is the right word to use when it comes to demarcating who is who has access to this understanding and who doesn't. Because at least, you know, in my friend group, they're all ethnic and they all came from lower to middle, middle to middle, lower class families. And they're all earning way more money than I am right now. So I'm not sure if it's because they're rich. Maybe that's more pronounced in in, in the States for other reasons. But I, I want to lean more into the cultural value of education that we kind of touched upon last Okay, like, I, I think I, that's where it is. I, I, I absolutely agree. And I hear what you say. Now, 
this is one thing that I, I learned in one of my um, like political science classes, you know, is that a lot of the immigrants that, that come from China or, or um, from Asia, for example, those parents were actually at the top of those respective mm. communist hierarchies. So those parents, they know how the world works. They, they know that doctors are better off than, than so forth. Now they come to America and they lose all of their their, their status, right? And I think I had one professor we, who described, um, we were talking about Eastern European Jews who came, who escaped yeah. the Soviet Union. And a lot of these guys in the Soviet Union were like physics professors, engineers, and so forth. And none of their educational credentials transferred over. Yeah. So they went from being like physics professors to driving taxi, taxi cabs, right? And, and it's known as the intellectual holocaust where all of these people lost all, all of their credentials. But sure. what yeah. they did not lose is they did not lose the wisdom and they did not lose the social capital that education actually gets you somewhere. So they were able to kind of, even though they lost their educational credentials and when they came to America or Canada fell into poverty, they were able to push their thumbprint down on their children and say, hey, I, I know I'm very poor right now and I drive this taxi, but back in Russia, I was blah, 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 you can too. So they're kind of instilling this, they're using their, their knowledge of the former system to kind of influence their children. I think the more dangerous, I, I actually have, I'm much more optimistic with immigrant groups, especially immigrant groups that um, come from a country in a more advantaged position. They, they tend to do better. I'm worried about our native native born citizens who are lower class and immigrant groups that come from a lower social economic strata because they actually don't, they've never seen, they've never seen what it looks like to be a highly educated, successful person. And I think that's, I think that's true. That's something definitely to bear in mind when we look at the immigrant and ethnic populations in both the States and Canada, that we do get the cream of the intellectual crop, even if they are taxi drivers, they were probably surgeons somewhere else or yeah. what have you. And that being said, now the conundrum I'm looking at is how do we tell kids that school is important in school? Like we have to use the tool that we have to convince them that the tool is useful when they're already disenfranchised with the tool. And it seems like this circular thing that will never get solved. And I think there are a couple of ways, but I'm curious as to what you might respond to that with first. So pay teachers more. I think I, I think that look. I think that if the child sees that the teacher is in poverty and in the states we do have um, states mm -hmm. where the teachers are earning below the poverty line and some of them, some of them actually have to work as waiters yeah. and dishwashers on the weekend. And that's like, what kid is going to respect that? They'll be like, look, mister, look where your education got you. Yeah. You're here at Applebee's, you know, on, on Sunday taking my order. We, we need to value, like there needs to be more visible options of people who have education or are doing well. And again, back to my earlier point, I think there needs to be more visitors, more you know, visitors from the professional class that kind of serve as mentors and serve as reminders of like, hey, look at me, look at the car I drive. And you know, it's not a bragging thing. It's not like this obnoxious, mm -hmm. like, you know, check out my Lexus kid. You know, it's not, mm -hmm. it's not done in that way, but they need to see um, examples of, since they don't have their own parents are not living this lifestyle, they need to see examples of other mentor-like figures that are living a pretty affluent lifestyle. And it's not because of their celebrity status, it's because of their education. And I think that is gonna be the most visible thing that we can do. And, and bringing those things into school in, in the form of after-school programs in terms of internships, I think internships are another great way because if you put a kid and, and you have them intern, even if they're just working in the mailroom or something like that, they kind of get to brush elbows with people who have education, who are making a decent livelihood through their brain. And I think that that's all positivity. So I think the more that we can integrate these worlds, the, the better it will be. We're not gonna be able to save everyone at first, but I, I think if kids could be like, ah, ah, that's, that's something I can follow. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because I'm thinking of an example um, that's very relevant in Ontario. It's the, the push for um, Indigenous teachers. We want more Indigenous teachers so that, like what you're saying, Indigenous students can see the value of education and have a positive education experience growing sure. up in Canada. But the issue is, is that there's so few, proportionally speaking, Indigenous people that make it through the 
elementary system, high school system, university system, teacher's college system, the number is so small that it's hard to put them in places where they're visible. And I guess, well, you could just reply to that by saying, well, just keep doing it. Just, you know, eventually the numbers will build. Yeah. But I think that's part of the issue is that I think lots of students would really benefit from seeing people who look like them or came from similar backgrounds, but it's hard to find them and it's hard to put them in those places. So as much as, yeah, I do want that to happen, but I think that's the difficulty that it's facing. You know, it's funny. We have the same exact problem here in the States. Um, we have very few teachers that actually reflect the demographic of the yes, school that yeah. they're teaching. And the the members that do get through college of these disenfranchised demographics, the last thing they want to do is major in education. They want to, mm -hmm. they're like, hey, you know, I'm, you know, I, like my family's in utter complete poverty. Let me pick computer science. Let me pick finance. Let me pick something that's going to make me wealthy because they're in a survival like mindset. They're, they're in an yeah. absolute survival like mindset. I, I, you know, again, I was in that survival like mindset myself. I have no, like, I'm just curious about what it is that I'm curious about that I, mm -hmm. I wasn't even thinking along those lines. But I, I, I think that th that is an issue. And I think that if you raise the teacher's salary, the, yeah. you, you, would, you yeah, increase true. the probability of these people that do come from these disenfranchised backgrounds majoring education because we're like, oh, shoot, teachers make, you know, 175 a year. Absolutely. Like, I, I can mm -hmm. see myself doing that. And you know, I, I think it makes I make I think it makes the, the the field that much more attractive to the you know the 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 few minorities that are getting through our education system. Yeah, I definitely think it's a it's a negatively compounding situation where if you have poor teachers, they influence their students poorly, and then those students become teachers, and then it gets worse, and then they get valued less, or they get paid less, and then it's yeah. just this kind of downward spiral. And yeah, that's I think that's a good place to start. I just think it's going to be very, very difficult to do that because like we said before, I think many Americans and many people around the world are sold on this idea that school is not all that important to be rich, with, which is the opposite of what the stats show. Yes. Um, and, and I think, you know, you and I are, are both kind of raising our eyebrow at, well, how, you know, who, who told that lie and why is it being propagated so much? And could it be by the wealthy elite? that's doing it as a secret society, maybe it could it be something else, just the how human nature is that we're attracted to glamorous people who didn't go to school. So that's what we latch on to when we think of the word wealthy and rich. I don't I mean, really know. You know, we are touching upon some dark shadows in our society. And to the point you spoke about earlier that you're right, the uh, the wise rich philosopher do doesn't make the most compelling, like The Sopranos is an extremely compelling television yes. series. And a lot is, of these yeah. other shows are highly compelling because they do have the Machiavellian like plot twist and all this other stuff. So I think that there is like people, you know, in the media want to make money, right? And they're going to produce content that's highly interesting and, and, and so forth. I do think, though, there's a lot more, more that we could be doing, but we're deliberately not doing it. And I think it kind of feeds into the wealthy elites fearing, fearing that, oh, oh, if there's more kids studying calculus, if there's more kids that are reading books now, my little Johnny isn't going to have a place in the hierarchy. Like, I, I do mm. think that there is yeah. a, and it's, it's probably happening at the subconscious level, yeah, because yeah why you know like a lot of these schools are, are not necessarily being integrated they're not being funded right and they're and they're not the, the same level of resources and the same level of emphasis is not there and it, it goes back to like all right well who's also having the low expectation like who's enforcing the low expectations now there's two arguments to be made here on one hand, the people with the low expectations are just such soft and good-hearted people. They don't, you know, they just they don't know the real deal. They're just so they're so good-hearted that they they just lack of discipline because they're good-hearted people. Or, and this is where it gets really monstrous, do they have low expectations because they secretly want these other kids to fail so that their little Johnny has a better shot at the game? Hmm. Yeah, I think. I'm, I'm pretty comfortable saying I think for the most part it's subconscious, but I definitely can imagine and even think of some cases where it's very much not subconscious, that the less competition there is for my kid and my family, the better. I think that's definitely out there, and that's true. 
So yeah, I can, I can, <laughs> I can see, I can see it for sure. Yeah. I'm not asking you to out your friends. Like I want to, I want to yeah, hunt yeah. these people. No, no, no. It's, it's like, like what we, but what we need to do is I, I think that, look, this is a, a fear. If that's the case, if the latter explanation is the true one, then this is a fear-based model. Like we have this idea that there's a lack of abundance and only a few of us can become educated and only a few of us are, are going to be secure. So it's, it's a really an abundance thing. So maybe one, another solution and I was, I had a, uh, an argument with a friend about this is about raising the floor. So if we create, if we create greater abundance and less inequality, right, then there's that less fear that a lower class kid is studying calculus, right? Because the less abundance there is, right? And then the more income inequality there is, then the rich are going to be more likely to be like, let me hoard the resources. Let me hoard the calculus classes. Let me hoard yeah. all the intellectual resources so that my kid can have it and they'll be okay. Screw the rest of the world. But if we live in a world where everybody has a certain standard of living or a certain level of guaranteed abundance, then there may, there may be less educational hoarding that goes on. That would make a lot of sense to me. I need to recall exactly where this stat or this claim came from, but it said that the best way for a city to improve homelessness is to fund the public transportation system because mm. that really benefits proportionally the most, the people who need it the most, that if you improve and make the transit more accessible, it means that the kids and the parents and the families who rely on the public transportation system are now eased in part of their financial burden. And that allows them to study better. And then that allows them to secure better jobs. It allows them to get to their jobs and back more easily. They're happier. And so, yes, I think that's one, one way to raise the floor is to just fund the te fund the fund the um fund the public fund get, get the bus to be free or okay. something like that or reduce reduce the subway for lower income or something like that all right now i'm glad that I, I think we've had a very good and exhaustive conversation on the systemic mm -hmm. things we can improve let's go to the family unit now and i, I think oh, this sure, is yeah. i think this is something that we could really touch upon and i'm liking this idea and and and, and maybe we also need to increase like parental training in some way. We need to have more parental training. And perhaps one of the things that we could teach in, in parent class <laughs> is, is this idea that if your kid sees you reading something, they are going to be more likely to read something as well, right? Because you're a young man, a young girl, you emulate what your, your uncle, your mother, your father, older siblings are doing. And if they see that the elders in their household are just watching football every Sunday for four, five, six hours, well, that's the normative. That's the normative standard of that household. So I'm wondering if we could increase parental. Like I had this idea, and and actually when I came up with this idea, people thought I was being fascist. But hear me out, okay? Mm -hmm. Like like you can get get your fascist guns ready for me, okay? Come get yeah, me, it's Marx. In, it, come it's get in me, the drawer. Okay, yeah. come, come get me, Marxist. Okay. Here was my idea, Daniel, and and I, I got this one woman screamed and yelled at me. I proposed that if you are on public assistance, you take parent and like, let, let's just say that you're not working and you're uh, on public assistance that, and again, we have to also work out the childcare element of, of this as well. I think it's not fair to demand something of people if they don't have adequate childcare. That, that's totally a legit and valid criticism. But I think that if you are on some kind of public assistance, parenting classes where they teach things like, hey, your kid watching you read is a good idea. Hey, taking an active interest in your kid's homework is a good idea. That could be a very powerful tool that we're not even using. And I think, I actually think that it's the people on the left that kind of prevent this coming to fruition because they think that that's uh, fascist control of the mind. They think, they, they think that that's an extension of a fascist, like, you know, your, your, your brain control, uh, mind control and all this other stuff. But I'm like, okay, look, if you're on public assistance, it means that perhaps something has gone wrong. And perhaps there's also something going wrong with your kids now. 
if we can kind of teach you these skills, and, and there's this imagery here of parents reading books, reading newspapers, and it doesn't matter what, they could be reading a Goosebumps book for all I care. I think that that imagery is going to have a profound and pronounced effect on that child, and they're going to want to emulate because every, every boy, whether they want to admit it or not, before they become a teenager, idolizes their dad in some way. There is, there is that infatuation that happens between uh, father and son, and we do have record numbers of fathers that are just completely absent from the household and the fathers that are there are probably not doing those things. Yes. So I like the concept. I thought you were going to go somewhere a lot darker <laughs> than, than, than free parenting classes for, for people on parental assistance. Because well, I would say it would be mandated though. That, that yes, was, the it would part. be mandated. Yeah. Yes. So I guess the first thing I was going to, I want to say is what I thought you were going to go with, which is an idea that I've heard thrown around, which is that if you are living below the poverty line, you are not allowed to have a kid. Or if you have a kid, it's taken away from you. That's something that I've heard that it's like, if you can't take care of yourself, it is irresponsible to you as the individual, the child you are bearing and the society at large for you to have this child. And there's a comedian who said, you know, it's, way easier to have a kid than it is to have than it is to order a pizza who has accidentally ordered a pizza do you know anybody <laughs> who's accidentally ordered a pizza but thousands of people have accidentally had children and so that's where i thought you were going to go and i think that there's a lot of problems with that because basically what you're doing is you're taking away reproductive rights from individuals and that's kind of dark and nasty so anyway that's where i thought you were going to so I, this I will, is, I, will this... I will say something on that point now this is mm -hmm. also something that's forbidden in the education system is you know, Daniel, in my time being a teacher, I've actually had a number of students who got pregnant when they were uh, 15, 16, 17 yeah. years old. And as teachers, we're not allowed, you know, to say anything about this at all. We're, we're supposed to just celebrate it and be like, oh, my goodness, congratulate, you know, like, mm -hmm. like, so there is, you know, I, I, there is no conversation about like, hey, before you have a kid, it might be a wise idea to earn at least your bachelor's degree. Or hey, before you have a kid, you might want to have these things set in place. And I, I think that I, I, you're right. like, yes, it is fascist to have like laws that restrict people's reproductive rights. I mean, that that's ridiculous. I, I completely agree. But I think that a, a a nice thing to have is I think there should be it should, like teachers and and in 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 sex ed class or in public health class. Teachers should be allowed to say, hey, look, people who wait until they're 30 to have kids are more likely to have a median income of blah, 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 and, and so forth. I think putting that knowledge and putting that information out there would be incredibly um, beneficial. And, you know, actually, if you look at the research, most educated parents have children much later in life. You know, they're, they're in, their, in their early to mid thirties at that point. And, and they want things to be just so. They want to have the, the house down. They wanna have the good, they wanna be not only at a good paying job, but they wanna be at that good paying job for five to 10 years and have income coming in. And they're also less likely to, it's funny, it's actually the wealthy that have less children. I think if you look at the yep. research, uh, wealthy parents actually have one to two children. And, and it's funny, they probably start panicking about like, oh my God, we're having one child and you know, the, the swimming pool is not even like fully built or whatever, you know, like yeah. <laughs> they're, they're, they're like overly fussy about the first child when they already have like a house and a half, whereas the lower income parents are having their fourth or fifth child and 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 like they're doing this in a one bedroom apartment. So I, I think putting this this um, information out there of like, hey, it might be a good idea to have kids later in life. You have enjoy your 20s, you know, backpack through Europe and have some fun and get a good education. I think those are values that are instilled amongst the upper class, but they're yes. not really the yeah. values that are instilled amongst the lower class. The lower class is like, you're 19. When are you, when's the, when's, when's my grandkid popping out? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think, I think to return to your concept, because I, when, when you're saying certain parents instill certain values uh, for your free parental classes, I want to ask, how is this going to be enforced? How are we going to mandate it? Are we willing to send parents to jail for playing hooky on these classes? Are we willing to find them? Like, what are we going to do to parents who do not show up to these parental classes? It's very simple. It's, it's you would have, if, if you miss a certain number of classes, your benefits are suspended until you start showing up. I, 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 it's nothing, mm -hmm. it's nothing that 
crazy. It's just, it's mandatory. You know, again, you miss one class. Okay, no problem. But if you miss like three or four of these classes, you get a letter, a stern letter in the mail saying, you know, you were absent on, you know, these itemized dates over here. If you do not return to class on such and such date, your benefits will be, you know, revoked or suspended until you return mm -hmm. or something like that. And again, a lot of people on the left are going to call me an evil fascist for yeah, dare. Do you even think for, There's for going to be that. some kind of uh, human rights violation that occurs there if you don't it's require not, it's it. It's not actually a human rights violation. And here's my argument why it's mm -hmm. not. If you are able to fully support yourself, well, then you don't need to go to these classes. Like it, it's just True. like you, like by, ver by, by virtue mm -hmm. of, and, uh, by virtue of accepting these benefits, right? I think the state is allowed to make some reasonable demands because they're not demanding you do this for no good reason whatsoever. You are accepting services and you are accepting, you know, allotment and money. I think it's only reasonable and fair for the state to impose some kind of criteria or some kind of demand to help better yourself, you know? And yeah. in the States, we even, we have something called, um, work laws where if you're on public assistance, you know, you're forced to get a job within three months. I think that's even, I think that's a lot more harsh than what I'm proposing where, you know, you have these states that like really force people to get jobs before they have the adequate skills and training to do so. I think this is a much happier, you know, world to be living in where we're just asking you to attend some classes so you can best raise your children. And look, in the in these classes, I guarantee you, you know, us being teachers, there's probably half the parents that are going to be doing it as a formality, and they're going to go right back to their, you know, uh, dysfunctional ways. But I think that there might be some parents that get caught up in this net who are like, oh wow, thank you for explaining the the virtue or the logic behind reading to my kids. Yeah, for sure. There's um there's a book that I think might be worth mentioning called Freakonomics. I read it a long time ago, but they wanted to see how come parents who read books parent better. Like how come like, is it true that reading a parenting <laughs> book will make you better at parenting? And they did a lot of uh, psychological analysis, they did surveys, and the conclusion that they came to was, well, it's not the fact that you're reading the book or that it's the content in the book. It's the fact that you are a parent who is concerned enough to try reading a book. Yeah. And it's that quality that makes you a good parent, not whatever is in the book itself or who wrote it or what's in it. And I think that might apply somewhat here, but like you said, it's good to cast the net at least. If you don't catch everybody, fine. But if you get one or two even, and you save one or two kids' lives, hey, that's I could see that being worthwhile. And what you're building in is you're building a, like a, a hidden conscientious because I think those parents that are reading these self-help books, they, there is there, there is a value system within those parents that were probably instilled by their parents and their grandparents yes. of like, hey, you need to be very methodical in the way that you're raising your kids. Hey, like, you know, I think of this example of like a grandparent saying, I think you're feeding your children too much candy right now. You know, like they have, there. those families have value systems that are passed from the grandparent onto the parent and then from the parent to the children. So what we're dealing with, Daniel, is we're dealing with families that have a broken chain. There's a, yeah. the, the chain is broken in the values hierarchy. And unfortunately, the state might have to come in in this case and they have to kind of be the wise grandparent. And Believe me, it's much better to have real grandparents that come in and, and, and um, endow wisdom into that house. But in this case, we might have to rely on the state to come in and, and plant the seeds of wisdom into some of these lower in, in income households. And then hopefully th this is a program that can end. Like once you have one or two generations that now have the correct value system embedded within them, now we can start breaking the, the cycle or the chain of poverty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good way to visualize it. I hadn't thought about the value system literally being a rope or a chain that flows down from generation to generation. And when we have a broken household, it's literally because the chain of values has been broken, passing it on. Yes. So, yeah. And I, I, you know, I, and, and, and one thing is that, you know, whether you're on the right or the left, I think this is really a moment where we need to all just 
like, I think this is an issue that we can solve. We can end mm -hmm. poverty and we can end like a lack of appreciation for education and values, but we all kind of have to just overcome some certain, some, some certain like precepts or, or, or presuppositions about these ideas. I, th I think it would be helpful if, the, if our friends on the left could just be like, wait a minute, Aaron's not an evil fascist by imposing on this. And the folks on the right you know, on the same token might also say, hey, we've been very stingy with our educational resources and mentors and things of that nature. Those things are really productive. Let's let's increase funding for these kind of programs to, to, to allow that. And I think I think if both sides kind of compromised on this issue and actually spoke and did what we're doing right now, Daniel, and, and spoke to each other in an authentic, vulnerable, genuine way, we could really solve this problem and solve it pretty darn quickly. I think so too. I think poverty, especially in a developed country like Canada and America, because poverty and homelessness is an issue here too. It seems like it shouldn't, it shouldn't happen. It, it, it shouldn't, but it does. And I think, yeah, hopefully we can make one little pitch towards solving that issue in one way, indirectly or non-directly. Absolutely. Um, so to any parents out there, Please read something to your kids before they go to bed. Daniel, thank you so much for being on the show today. Yes. Thank you, Aaron. This concludes the 62nd episode of the Truth Island podcast. I'm Aaron Azrod.